authentic living today. The question, is baptism part of God's salvation plan? From 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. I could have given this message the title, How to Find a Good Bible Translation. You'll understand that a little bit later. A youth minister baptizing, I got, to, I got to witness this. This was his first baptism. And as he did this, it was a teenage girl, and he decided to start talking and telling all of us that he's a, baptizing his first person. So he takes the girl, and it's very similar to the baptism, the baptistry here. He takes the girl, he puts her under, and he goes, you know, this is my first baptism. He starts talking about, you know, I've, I've always wanted to do this. I knew this day would come. And as he's talking about his first baptism, he starts jerking. She's losing her ability to hold her breath. And finally, he realizes what's going on, and he lets her up, and she lets out this big <gasps> in front of everybody. And we all laughed, and we all applauded. So I've been very guarded against that sort of thing. You know, you got to say what you got to say, then dunk them in the water, get it done smoothly, have a good transition. I've got a couple more uh, stories I want to share with you as we go through. If you're not prepared to take notes, you might want to be prepared to take notes. Not that I'm going to give you something you haven't already heard. Most of you in this room know the subject of baptism. However... I've been given a privilege. I've got to teach for Christ in youth for 14 years. Much of that time was on the campus of Southwest Baptist University. Privilege to write curriculum that's been used in seminaries on baptism. And privilege to be in the room with many other pastors and experts in theology. And I've got to tell you that even though... Much of my experience has been with independent Christian church pastors. There seems to be, over my 35 years or so of preaching, there seems to be a trend where there are less and less preachers and professors who think that baptism is necessary. It's shocking. So I want to encourage you to put on your thinking caps. Take notes if you need to. I have a suspicion if you haven't already gotten into a discussion with someone about this, you will. And there could be someone who is in the car outside today, someone in the room today, or someone that listens to this online who needs to understand the biblical teaching of baptism. So I want you to understand, first of all, some logical reasoning basics. There are two major divisions in rudimentary logical reasoning, and that would be, first of all, deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. You can see a chart behind me. And you start on deductive reasoning with presumed or derived truth. And then you take that presumed or derived truth and you apply it. Most of the time, this is the way teachers and preachers are presenting material. 
it's a reasonable way, it's a memorable way. When you hear somebody say 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, they're doing a deductive presentation. But if you go over to the inductive side, this is the way it works. You gather facts that lead to a conclusion or derived truth. Now, there's room for both of these. And in all of the books and the movies, you kept hearing simple deduction, my dear Watson, when Sherlock Holmes would talk. But then when you look at this, you realize, wait a minute, he was doing induction, not deduction. It was inductive reasoning. It's very difficult, though, when you make a point to present inductively, it's so much easier to present deductively. <clears throat> so, I want you to know that if you can present inductively, if you're a teacher, you ever have an opportunity to teach, if you can try to do it this way, what will happen with the student is what happens to you in your research. A light bulb will go off. That aha moment where you go, ah, that makes sense. Instead of just having people who understand your first point, your second point, your third point, you have people who are reading and discovering, and they land on the truth, and it stays within them because the light bulb, light bulb goes off in their head. If you want to use this term, they are enlightened. Now, here's some hermeneutics basics, and hermeneutics is just the expensive word for Bible study. <laughs> First, there is eisegesis. I'll tell you about eisegesis. This would fall under deduction or deductive reasoning. You, you can start with assumptions. They could be assumptions that you've been given because your preacher taught you, maybe me, a teacher taught you, your parents taught you, grandparents taught you. Your assumptions could be true. But also want to put on this, on this category proof texting. This is what people do when they already believe something. And if you are doing proof texting, what you're doing is you already have a belief, so you're reading the Bible with the understanding that you already understand this, so you're, you're going to find the scriptures that support your belief. That's called proof texting. I know what I believe, so I'm going to find the scriptures to prove it. Now, that's okay if you happen to be right, but it's not the best Bible study method because your judgment is clouded going in. And I want to tell you that I did not start. I wish I had time to give you more. I'll be glad to share it with you personally if you want to know. But I did not start off as a preacher. I did not start off believing that baptism was necessary for salvation. I did go to uh, my first undergraduate seminary that taught me that it was... But through life's experiences, I had come to my own conclusion and decided, no, it wasn't. Until a loving brother confronted me. I thought I was confronting him. <laughs> we had a long discussion about it. And he confronted me, and I, I, I said, I tell you what, why don't you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and take notes of what the Bible says about baptism, and then you'll get an understanding. And he said, I will if you do. <laughs> so I did. And I... I <laughs> I didn't even get to the New Testament before I realized my error. By the time I got to Numbers chapter 22, I believe, between 20 and 22, where Moses struck the rock. Remember when he struck the rock twice and water poured out and the people of God were nourished? Um, he didn't do what God said. This is God's man. 
that he had selected as the Savior that would take the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. He handpicked him. This is the man that's going to take us in, the deliverer. And yet, after that, that incident, God said that Moses would never enter the promised land. So, you, so I had to back up, like, what in the world did he do wrong? He says, he, you, you didn't honor me. You chose not to honor me. What did he do wrong? Well, the first time, the first occurrence, God told Moses to take Aaron's staff and to strike the rock. But the second time, he only told him to speak to the rock as he held Aaron's staff. Grab Aaron's staff and speak to the rock. Instead, Moses, I don't know what he was thinking, probably like, you people, this is the second time. And he struck the rock twice. Water poured out and nourished the people. But Moses slightly deviated from what God told him to do. He did it his way. And it was at that moment I had an aha moment. I realized, oh my goodness, I have to follow God's way no matter what I think about it. Now I want to talk about uh, the next, I've got to remember the next one. Oh, yeah, exegesis. We have these codes between us here in the sound booth. I've got to say the right thing or I'm going to confuse myself. <laughs> And you too. So exegesis. This would be induction. Eisegesis is when you're, you're kind of forcing into the text your beliefs. Exegesis is when you're getting out of the text your beliefs. This is induction. And the way it works, you'll see, is that you're taking out of Scripture to come up with a conclusion. You're gathering the facts and you come up with a conclusion. Now, let's talk about baptism. And how this relates to all of this. Oh yeah, light bulb goes off. He's with me. You weren't. Because I, I wasn't with myself. How about that? The light bulb goes off when you can gather the facts and come up with a conclusion. Baptism. I want to I focus on Scripture when we talk about baptism. And... We have, some of you may have come in with questions I may not answer today, so talk to one of your elders if you need answers to your questions. But if we're going to answer the questions, we go to the Bible to find the answers to a biblical subject, right? So what we want to do is we want to take out of the Bible whatever it says, gather the facts, and then we'll come up with the answers. And then light bulbs should go off. This is what we should do when we teach children about baptism or any adult who doesn't know. So we want to focus on the Bible. Stay with me, because we're going to get to it. I'm going to put baptism. Baptism is our subject, and there's going to be three things that we're going to talk about. So now I'm presenting to you and deductively. See how I am? Purpose, practice, and plan. I purposely used the letter P because some, some people misspell baptism. It's got a P in it, not a second B, just so you know. So there's purpose, practice, and plan. And first of all, let's talk about the practice. All right. I want to put down a, a timeline. And you'll see on this timeline at the very beginning, you'll see around 30 A.D. This is about the time that Jesus was baptized. We'll look at that scripture in just a moment. 
And I want you to see also on the timeline about 95 AD. This is about the time that John finalized the books, the last books written in the New Testament. So the New Testament is complete by then. And I want to put another date up here, 753 AD. This is the first officially, and I shouldn't say officially because it wasn't really officially permitted, but it was a first, first officially recognized baptism by sprinkling or pouring. And then we'll fast forward to 1310 on the timeline. And that is when it officially became a practice where you could either be baptized by immersion or by sprinkling or pouring. I want you to look at that timeline and pay careful attention to those numbers I gave you because you need to ask the question. So if it wasn't officially accepted, acceptable as a practice until 1310, it wasn't officially recognized as a historical thing that it happened by the hands of a priest in 753 A.D., does that tell you something about the practice of sprinkling or pouring? It's extra-biblical. It was not happening in New Testament times. It's not in the Bible. It's extra-biblical. Long time after the Bible was complete, man came up with this mode of baptism or this practice of baptism. I want to give you the Greek word. It's baptizo. You can see it. This is how you say it, transliterated. And it means immerse. In fact, I have a, an 1810 Liddell Scott Greek dictionary. I don't pull it off the shelf very much at all because it's been bound and rebound and rebound, and, that, and now it falls apart. Every time I take it off the shelf, something else falls apart. So I, I don't take it off the shelf very often. But I wanted to find out what did the word baptize or baptizo, what did it mean before the Christians started using it? That's what I wanted to know. And so I, I looked it up, and I sh sure enough, I found out the etymology of the term, and it was a military term. It meant to sink a ship. A commander would pull up alongside, uh, a captain would say, I sink it. It's a violent death at sea. And that's what Christians understood when they heard the word baptize. It is a violent death in the water. Now, I want to go to the purpose. Now, the purpose of baptism is significant because it's probably the most divisive subject across denominations in the world today when it comes to baptism. The purpose of it. What's the purpose of it? Even in the Christian church, you hear a lot of talk about it's an outward um, expression of an inner change. Uh, that, that's a div divisive statement. There are people that think that it's just to join a church. When I was teaching at Southwest Baptist University for Christ and Youth uh, for seminars, there was an interesting thing. I, there was a youth minister that brought his kids there from a Baptist church, and he happened to be the lifeguard at the pool. So every time there was a baptism, he had to be the one to open it up. However, while I was teaching a class, it was an advanced track session for future college students who would not be going to seminary. So university students that are Christians, what do you need to know as you go into these secular universities as a Christian? One of the things I felt necessary to teach on was baptism, 
And that struck a chord with some of these kids because their youth minister, who happened to be the lifeguard, adamantly told them, you do not need to be baptized. And by the way, I've heard more than one youth minister in Christian churches tell kids this. This guy, his kids kept, the class kept growing. This guy showed up to the class because they invited him and told him what I was teaching, and he came to challenge me in front of everybody. But the class kept growing and growing and growing, and I had to make material because I, I ran out. So I had to go into the books, not to the bookstore, the administrative building, and ask permission to make some material on their equipment. And they said, yes, there's, a, there's stuff on that copier over there, but you can take it off, just put it back on like you find it. Okay, so I did. But when I took it off, it happened to be the doctrine they were giving all of the preachers that go through there on baptism. And the page that it was on was the question, what do you do when a family comes and the people are already baptized? Since the Baptist church teaches this is only a, a way to join the local church, do you re-baptize them to join your local church? Or do you just accept that they were already baptized and accept their membership? The answer to the question was, to the, the good preacher in the local church. You do what the local church tells you to do. And I thought, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Baptism is a play toy, just to do with as you please. Whatever the local church says, that's the, what the practice is. So in other words, the Bible doesn't talk about it? Really? I thought this was a biblical subject. The good thing is, is that I ended up uh, baptizing almost all of this youth minister's kids, and he had to watch it because he had to open the pool. And he, it was, uh, it was encouraging to see that. But the purpose of baptism is a significant thing. I'll tell you another funny story. Um, when I was uh, given the privilege to meet a guy by the name of Ralph Embody, uh, he's a truck driver. He's uh, since gone on to meet the Lord. I don't want to say a whole lot of negative things about his past life before he met the Lord um, here on earth, but let's just say he was a proverbial truck driver with all the negative things that go with that. And he looked like it. He was bald up here, but he had long hair and a ponytail. It grew around the side and the back. He was tattooed up pretty good. He was a lifetime chain smoker. He had the skin to show for it. You know what I'm talking about? Leather-looking skin. He was a rough and tough guy. And when I baptized him, he's just that kind of guy. He just got real stiff when I baptized him. And it's a baptistry that's similar to yours. Um, and the steps are here on the right. And when I baptized him, he stiffened up. And because of that, I thought, okay, buddy. So I shoved him down hard. Yeah, okay, you, you fight me, I'm going to fight you. And when I did, because of the, him stiffening up and me forcing it, I smashed his head into the concrete steps, the bald part just above his hairline, and it, it actually cut his head open. And as, I, as he came up, he came up acting like he wanted to hit me, but he didn't. And then later... He told his family, he told me, he told everybody, he had to knock the devil out of me. That was supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah, that, that leads me to another story I'll tell you about later because it, it 
caused me to be more cautious. Matthew chapter 3, I said we get to the part about Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee, I'm reading from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Understand this, Jesus is the only person that ever walked the planet who did not need to be baptized, and he did it and said, it. we all need to do this. It's, it's what we're supposed to do. And there's only two places where God responded to Jesus the way he did here. Look at this. The next verse. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. That's an interesting thing. I had a man come to me and show me his mother's Bible. He was very adamantly opposed to baptizing in the water. He says, you can be sprinkled or poured. It's okay. He brought me his mother's Bible. I'm going to show you in the Bible where it's okay to sprinkle. So he, he opened it up, and, he, and there was a painting of John the Baptist sprinkling Jesus' head, and they were this high in the Jordan River. And he said, see, there's proof right there. Okay, a painting. That proves that. So notice Jesus came up out of the water. Why, if you're going to sprinkle somebody, would you go down into the water to do it? Why wouldn't you just stand on the side and get your fingers wet? It makes no sense that anybody thinks there was any sprinkling or pouring going on in the New Testament. It didn't happen. So he came up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is the only two times this happened in Jesus' life here on earth, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Don't just skip over that Holy Spirit part. We'll get back to that as well. There's an interesting thing that happened. I, I, I'll give you a heads up. We'll get to this in a minute. But, you know, for Christ's will to be put into effect, he had to die, be buried, rise again. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. If you'll remember, the apostles began to preach to a large crowd. It ultimately landed on Peter to take over the preaching, and his words were recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Peter had people in the palm of his hands. The Jewish people were marveling. They were already marveling. These men seem uneducated, but wow. I mean, he's talking about the law and Moses, like, huh, this is good stuff. And the Gentiles don't get to hear this very much, but they were mixed in too, and they got to hear this stuff about Moses, you know, and the history of Israel. Like they, they realize they're special. They get to hear some of this history too. This is good stuff. They could tell Peter preached with authority just like Jesus did. And as they're listening to this, and Peter's got them in the palm of his hands, we pick up in Acts chapter 2. Verse 36, it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, whoa, he's laying the blame on the crowds and on us. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And if, for those of you who don't know what that means, that means they were 
convicted. They became believers at that moment. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, realizing it's, it's our fault, it's my fault that Jesus went to the cross. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, say, wait, back up a little bit. Thanks. Peter said to them, ready for this? Look at your Bibles. Nothing. You already believe. You're saved forever. Congratulations. Is that what he said? No, but there's a lot of books and a lot of preachers and a lot of other experts that'll tell you that's it. All you got to do is believe. James says, no, even the demons believe. But Peter didn't say, just believe. They already did believe. He said something more. Look at what he said. Now you can click it. Repent. We talked about that already. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to take you to a place you don't want to go. Do you remember in English class when you diagram sentences? That was your favorite, wasn't it? I'm sure it was. Okay, so up behind me, here's a diagram sentence. I don't know if you can see the lines very well. But we have it diagrammed. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to think that prepositions and prepositional phrases must be thrown out because they don't mean anything. That's not true. That's not true at all. It's absolutely connected. In fact, if that's what you do, I think I've given you this illustration before. If you go to the store and you want to buy a candy bar and you say it costs a dollar, you give the cashier one dollar for the candy bar, and then the cashier takes the candy bar away and keeps the dollar. Well, that's what you would do if prepositions didn't matter, because you see, you just gave a dollar for the candy bar. But if the preposition and the prepositional phrase doesn't matter, pull it out of the sentence. You just gave the cashier a dollar. Walk out of the store and you're good. No, no. You gave her a dollar or him a dollar for the candy bar. So you get the candy bar. That's the way it works. Prepositions matter. Notice these prepositions here. You repent, every one of you, repent and be baptized for what? For forgiveness of sins. Well, that matters. That's why you're doing it. Wow. It's interesting. Repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. Don't miss this part, though. Acts 2.38 also says this. Look, we'll look at that verse again. Look at this. It says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Huh. So you're baptized for forgiveness of sins, and you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole subject all by itself uh, when you want to talk about the difference between the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. For the sake of time, I'll let you know, this is talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. You get the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. As you're going through life and you're struggling, you've got something to hang on to. You've got the access to the power and the glory of God in you. That's a wonderful thing about baptism. Now, question. You might ask me at this point. You, maybe you think I've already answered it. Are you saying baptism is necessary for salvation? Well, here's the answer. No. God is. I'm not the one saying baptism is necessary for salvation. I just happen to believe the words that we're reading in the Bible. This is our source book for God's wisdom. It doesn't matter what I think. If I agree with it or not, it's still the truth. I just happen to agree with it. 
<laughs> Have you seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> yeah. Where they happen to stumble across people being baptized in the river. It's a beautiful scene. And one of the criminals has to be baptized. And he comes up out of the water. I'm saved. Then he goes right back into robbing people. But he at least he understands that baptism is supposed to make a difference. It's supposed to save you. That is not common teaching today. Baptism has been relegated to simply a thing you should do because it's in the Bible. Maybe to join a church, but it's not that big a deal. That's what people teach. Max Lucado is not one of them. He's one of the authors you can trust on baptism. But there's not a whole lot more popular authors out there that will tell you that what God says about baptism is true. That's deeply disturbing. JC, I'm going to skip a slide. We're going to go to Romans chapter 6, and I want to talk about this. In fact, what I'd like to show you is the significance of this. I'll read it, verse, starting with verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you, did you get that? So we were baptized into his death so that we may begin our new life. That's what baptism is. It's a clear marker in your spiritual journey. The old self is buried, the new self comes up. You were probably taught this as a child. It's, not, it's just not trendy to teach that anymore. We don't, we don't hear it much anymore. But even that goofy criminal and, oh, brother, where art thou, understood this. That's what's happening. You baptize because it's for salvation. I walked into the home of a farming family. I loved the farming family. Um, the, the matriarch of the family was in a wheelchair and she finally decided to ask me a question. She got, got up enough trust after a few weeks of me being their preacher. She said, why can't I be baptized? Now, her daughter had already pulled me aside and said, Mom wants to be baptized. We can't do that. She's in a wheelchair. Her health is too far badly gone. We just can't do it. We're, you know, it's something we can't do. She wants to be, but she, you just can't do that. I'm telling you right now, preacher. So she asked me, and the daughter's there, everybody's there, and they all know I've already been informed you can't baptize her. She says, why can't I be baptized? So being young and naive, I was still in my 20s, I turned to the daughter and I go, I don't know, why can't she? <laughs> so put it back on her, because she's the one that's saying she can't. Well, she's, you know, she's in a wheelchair. I said, well, our baptistry's big enough. It was a big one. In fact, it was big enough that multiple people could stand in it with a wheelchair, we tested that theory. So we came up with a plan. She wanted to be baptized. She wanted to do it on Sunday morning. So we did. And we took the, the wheelchair and we had guys on this side and guys on that side in the baptistry. I was in it as well. We were able to lift her up in the wheelchair and put her in the baptistry. Now understand she was morbidly obese. 
One of the guys that was in the baptistry with me, he was a, I just baptized him just a few weeks earlier. He knew, got to be baptized, got to do it. He was fully convinced, got to, and he was very convinced with this passage in Romans, you got to go all the way under. It's a violent death in the water, all the way under. Okay, so he's in the, he's up there with me, and he's a, he's a big guy, he's an athlete, he's in his probably mid-30s, but he's an athlete, he's an umpire of a lot of softball games in the area. Little did I know, I didn't realize this at the time because I was young and naive. I did not know that fat floats. And when we went to baptize her in the wheelchair, she popped out of it. Boop! Her feet came up and they're sticking up in the air. And that 30-something-year-old yeah, athlete in the water with me was determined. Uh-uh. She's going all the way under. So he jumped on her. Whoo! And everybody got splashed with baptistry water. All of us inside and outside, but she had a violent baptism in the water. And her daughter was incorrect. We could baptize her. She was very happy, and, and actually, she did not get sick from the baptism, but she did not live a long time after that. So I was grateful that we were able to, to do that. Galatians tells us something about this Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith and people might take this and say see this is another one of those passages all you got to do is have faith my Bible and your Bible teaches that faith must be demonstrated so part of that demonstration of your faith would be baptism but thankfully this scripture doesn't stop right there look at the rest of it the next verse for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ and it doesn't take a logical reasoning scholar to figure out when you ask the question, well, what if you're not baptized? Then you haven't clothed yourself with Christ. You haven't put on Christ. Unless you want to take a marker and mark that verse out of your Bible. If you haven't been baptized, you haven't been buried with him to rise anew. If you haven't been baptized, you haven't put on Christ. You haven't clothed yourself with Christ. And somebody might say, whoa, 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 whoa. So you're saying you have to work your way to heaven because baptism's a work. And so isn't baptism a work? I've been asked that. Well, I think Jesus answers that question in John chapter 6. Look at verse 28. Then they, asked, they, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, what works must we do? The answer, verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I share that scripture with you because it's clear. Jesus called believing a work. And if you want to say, or you, you, you can't say you do any works to go to heaven, well, Jesus called believing a work. You say you don't have to believe? believe believing is a work, according to Jesus. Anybody out there, anywhere gonna, that claims to be a Christian, going to say you don't need to believe to become a Christian? Nobody's going to say that. I don't care if you call baptism a work. Jesus called believing a work. Okay, fine. Call it a work. The Bible says you have to do it, just like you have to believe. <clears throat> There's more. There was a time. In fact, I'll help you out. Sometimes we, we fail to memorize where certain passages are. Like when Paul was struck blind... You, you know when he, where that happened? Acts chapter 9. Paul was struck blind. Acts chapter 9. See, it rhymes. 
So that's how you can remember. Paul was struck blind in Acts chapter 9. He retells the story a couple of times, and one of the times he retells the story is later in the book of Acts. And while he's telling this story, remember what happened. He's struck blind. Jesus identifies himself. <laughs> Jesus, the one you're, you've been persecuting. Paul's been killing Christians because he felt like he was right. And Jesus strikes him down on the road to Damascus. He is struck down, blinded. Jesus confronts him. Paul becomes a believer on the road to Damascus. People say Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. And what a lot of people mean when they say that is Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. And I would submit to you that no, he was not. Because he retells the story in Acts chapter 22. And in Acts chapter 22, after Paul is told, we know he's a believer because Jesus tells him, you go to Ananias. Paul could have said, I'm not going to Ananias. But he did what Jesus told him to do. And he was led by the hand to Ananias because he was blind. He went there and he had been, days had passed, by the way. He had been very much, you know, in all kinds of, you know, things going through his mind. Like, man, I've been killing Christians and I'm wrong. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias heals him. And then he says this, look at this, Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul had not had his sins forgiven days after he was a believer. He's told, what are you waiting for? Get baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the Lord. Okay. Wow. Question. This is going to come up. If it hasn't come up, it'll come up. What about the thief on the cross? Maybe you've heard this. People say, they think, they think they've got you. Well, what about the thief on the cross? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get down and get baptized. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What about that? Huh? Feel like they dropped the mic on you. That's what they think. But I want to explain something to you, and it'll make sense. <laughs> this question is indicative of a lack of understanding of the most rudimentary tenet of Christianity. I'm serious. And that is, look at this, that salvation only comes as a direct result of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Wouldn't you agree? That's the only way you're going to have salvation is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It, there's no other salvation except through Jesus because he died and he rose again. That's how salvation comes, right? Does that make sense to you? So if a person asks the question, what about the thief on the cross? You know they, they're, they're missing this rudimentary teaching. They don't get it. Wait a minute. What about the thief on the cross? Okay, was there salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at the time that he told the thief, I'll see you in paradise? No, there was no death, burial, and resurrection. He hadn't died yet. There was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? So what about Abraham? What about Moses? What about the thief on the cross? None of them were under this will of God that salvation comes only through 
Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. There was no death, burial, and resurrection while he's still hanging on the cross. <laughs> so asking the question, what about the thief on the cross, is indicative that somebody doesn't understand how salvation works. The most rudimentary tenet of Christianity. There was no death, burial, and resurrection yet. So why do you even ask that? doesn't make sense. In fact, if you want a scripture that will help you understand this, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Question. Is there a verse that actually says baptism saves? Answer. Since I'm saying I agree with Scripture, which says baptism is necessary for salvation, it would be nice if there was a verse which actually has the words baptism saves together. Right? Wouldn't that be nice if we could find a verse like that? Well, let me remind you, we're going through a series... Here's the, the series we're going through. And I said, I said in this, how, this, you could call this How to Find a Good Bible Translation. I'm about to show you why I said I could call it that. But we haven't even looked at our text. So get ready. i got another hour to go. I'm just kidding. I'm close to the end. But now we've got to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 18. We read this last week, but I'm going to read it again, the first, this particular verse, and then I'll read further. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, just for a moment, I want to talk about that. Some people say this, is, this passage says Jesus went to hell. There's a lot of people that teach that. There's movies made about this. People say, I see Jesus went to hell. That's not what this is saying. I don't believe that's what this is saying at all. Jesus did minister to people while here on earth. Many people. Everything was not written about. John clearly said, I, I couldn't write everything. I, it would take up a lot of space to do that. So it's not talking about, this is not a, I don't think it's a very good argument saying that Jesus went to hell. Don't use this to say that. But we got to get to the rest of this, so let's move on. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Isn't that interesting? Because it's really the boat that saved them. But there's an analogy that is being used in our text today that the water did. 1 Peter 3.21 and following baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I have a footnote up here because I want it to be clear. I learned this from Seth Wilson, a mentor of mine, how to pick a good Bible translation. And this is a great way. If, you, if a new Bible, uh, translation comes out and you want to figure out, is this a good one? Is it accurate? Go to 1 Peter 3.21 and see what they do. 
with the Greek word heperotema. The Greek word heperotema means request or appeal or something to that effect. In some of our newer translations that I happen to like, but I don't think they're very accurate, they play with that. And they play with it for a reason. And they change it to mean something that it doesn't mean in any other form, any other Greek literature, because it doesn't fit their theology on baptism. What they change it to is something to the effect of pledge. So if your Bible says, okay, the baptism is a pledge of a good conscience toward God, look at the difference. Okay, God, I'm being baptized. I appeal to you. Save me. God, I'm being baptized. I promise I'm saved. You see the difference? There's a big theological difference there. One puts baptism on the side of you need it for salvation. One puts it on the other side, you're already saved. You're just doing this. And so because we have so many theologians, it's so trendy in the several years it's been trendy to say that baptism is relegated to nothingness. You don't need to do it. Translators decided to come up with their own way to translate the Greek word heperotema to not mean request or appeal, but make it say pledge or promise. Those are very different meanings. That's a dangerous thing to do. So if you want to determine whether or not you've got an accurate translation, see if they played with 1 Peter 3.21. But I I don't want you to miss this. Remember I said, is there a verse that has baptism saves in the same? Look at this. Baptism saves you. You see that? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Baptism saves you. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. There is a verse. It's in our text. There it says it. But I do want to show you something else. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For, here, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. <laughs> Go all the way back to Jesus' baptism. Remember the Spirit descended on him. There's symbolism there. It's connected to the day of Pentecost. As his will was put into effect and the apostles preached the word of God as the church was established, his will is put into effect and he says very clearly, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, be baptized in the water. There's water. For the forgiveness of your sins, there's the cross, there's the blood. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. God is so wise. He puts it all together, wraps it all up, and packages it so that we can understand it. It's not difficult to understand. The three are in agreement. The water, the blood, and the spirit. There is a time, because this happens. In fact, I was preaching at a church here in Washington State. and Baptism came up because we're going through the Bible. You don't have to go far, and you'll see baptism is going to come up in the new testament there it is it just keeps coming up in fact in the great commission we're commanded we're supposed to be baptizing people but we were going through the bible baptism came up so i said a little bit about what the bible says about baptism and i offered a song of decision and one of our singers in the worship team took a few steps right to me and i thought what is she doing like hey we're doing an invitation here 
long time, raised in the church. But she felt like she didn't know what she was doing when she was baptized. This came up at a North American Christian convention back when we did those. <laughs> and, and there was um, the president of Summit Theological Seminary, George Fowle, was in the room. And a question was asked about baptism because they noticed then that it was trendy that baptism is being relegated to nothingness. Seth Wilson was in the room and he gave some insight. But George Fowle told a story about his wife. George Fowle is the president of Summit Theological Seminary for a long time. He runs a, a business also, a successful business. He also happens to be the preacher at a local church. He's a busy guy. He's successful in all that he does because the Lord is his Lord, so he does what he does with excellence. And his wife kept bugging him for years. George, I don't think I knew what I was doing when I was baptized. And he argued with her. No, you knew what you were doing. Stop it. Just kept on. And it would always happen at night. They're trying to go to sleep. Finally, one night, he said, fine. What came to mind was James 4, 17. He that knows the good and ought to do it but he that knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it to him that has sinned. So he thought, you know what, this is, this is really bothering her. So the next time she asks, I'm going to just say, okay, we're going to go do it. So they, he had the keys to the church, so just him and her went to the church, and he baptized her. And according to him, she had a peace that she had been missing for many years. That's what happened when this song leader, the worship, one of the people on the worship team came up to me and said, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Shocked her husband, her kids, and everybody else. But she didn't, and she wanted to make it right. Good for her. It's possible that somebody here is thinking that, like, you know, I did it a long time ago, but I, I don't think I knew what I was doing. In fact, when I baptize kids, I always make the kids write to the parents the reasons why they believe they know they're ready to be baptized. And I like to keep that on file with the local church, and the parents need to have a copy of it, so that when the kid comes back later and says, I don't think I knew what I was doing, well, here's what you wrote. I'll remind you, because sometimes we just forget. We think we didn't know. We think that the more we know about the Holy Spirit, and the more we know about Scripture, the more we know about how it's absolutely necessary for salvation, we think, okay, I need to go back and redo it, because I don't think I knew all that. It's not about needing to know more facts. There's a couple of things you do need to know. You're doing it for salvation, and it comes with the Holy Spirit. And I say that second piece for this. There is a passage, the only passage in the Bible that talks about a rebaptism. It's the only, only case. It's in Acts chapter 19, starting with verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's the only case. And the big issue was they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. So it matters what you know when you're baptized. The two things, it's for forgiveness of sins 
and you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. It's for us too. Now, talking about baptism, let's talk about the plan. We talked about the practice, the purpose, and the plan, or the practice and the purpose. Now we're going to talk about the plan. Here, show you another uh, little uh, gif image of, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> Come on in, boys. The water is going slow. It's fine. <laughs> So what's the plan? Well, the plan is for God's people to understand how important it is. What's his plan for you? Well, you could be sitting in the car listening to this message right now and thinking, I need to make this right. And since you're sitting in the car, you're trying to do social distancing. You're not trying to get near people. And so how do you do this baptism thing? Don't worry about it. We can figure it out. We can do face shields. We can do all kinds of things, rubber gloves, and make sure that... Um, we try to do safety protocols to make sure you're okay. Just let the church know that you want to be baptized. If you're in this room and you need to get something right, then you need to let us know probably today. It's a small baptistry. We can fill it up pretty quickly. <clears throat> Maybe you know somebody who needs to hear this message. Maybe you know somebody who doesn't think it's that important, but need, they need to know. Maybe the plan is for you to get that to them somehow, some way. Talk to them. <laughs> well, there was a Presbyterian leader in a church in Indiana before I came out here. He had read some of my literature on baptism. And he kept it to himself because we were in a town of a thousand. We were a church of 800. The, the, the Sunday that I... Uh, resigned, I think it was 753. And so pretty much everybody from all over was coming to the church, you know. Why would he want to come and talk to me about baptism? He's the leader of the Presbyterian church, you know. But he did come. He came and he wanted to do it secretly. He, he came with one of our church members who knew me and she said, he wants to talk to you about baptism. I was getting ready for a wedding. I had a full suit on, not just a sport coat, full suit. And he wanted to do it right then because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but denominations that teach baptism can be done by sprinkling or pouring. Most of them require that the preacher is immersed. <laughs> he had not been, and he felt like he needed to make it right. So he wanted to do it secretly. This man was 97 years old. He was a smaller man. And as we got to go in the baptistry, it's a big baptistry. This one's really big, like a, almost like an indoor pool. We kept it warm. We had a piece of styrofoam that stayed on top of it to keep it warm all the time. So anytime we need to do a baptism, we're ready. And uh, the waders we had were made for people that were tall and wide. So when I put them on, they were big size 14 shoes, you know, so they're extra big, big and loose, so anybody could wear it. So as I go down the steps, he's right there with me. I'm trying to help him because he's pretty fragile, you know. And as we get down to the water, he starts taking things off. Hearing aid, puts it over here. Hearing aid, over here. Glasses. He even took his false teeth out. I didn't know how far this was going to go. Oh, 
Is this going to keep going? And he said to me, warning you, I'm afraid of water. I said, it's okay. <clears throat> so we go down into the water, and we get down to the edge of the steps, and we don't go very far, far past the steps. You can tell he doesn't want to go further. He just wants to stay by the steps. Okay. So we're close, really close to the steps. And these steps didn't go cover the whole end, so I was able to back up near the steps. But I was thinking about that baptism I told you about where I smashed the guy's head. I don't want to do that. And the steps are right here, so I've got to be real careful. So as I go to baptize him, he doesn't stiffen up, but he goes, whew, he got afraid. As I'm putting him under the water, and he hits me, he knocks my arm loose off of his face. I'm like, whoa. And as he does that, I'm, he starts to fall backwards, and I'm thinking, okay, fine. So I, I thought, I don't want him to hit his head on the steps. So I just cradled him and hugged him and took him under the water with me. I, I landed on the steps. And I got him all the way under. And then I, helped, I stood up and helped him up. I figured that was the easiest way not to break him, you know. So I stood up with him. And then he, you know, wiped his face off and said, I'm sorry about that. He says, okay, it's okay. So he goes to walk up the steps. The lady was up at the top of the steps seeing the whole thing. And she had gathered all of his things that he had taken off. And she's got towels. And she's wrapping him in towels. And as he's going down the steps by himself, she's standing at the top with a towel for me. And she's watching me. You remember uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when the, when the girl ate something and she turned into a, this big blueberry? That was me. Because these waders were full of water. And I'm walking up the steps and I'm trying to squeeze the water out. And as I'm doing this, and I got a suit on. And as I'm doing this, the lady says, do you always do it like that? <laughs> yeah, that's the way I always do it. <laughs> uh, all right, so I showed you this slide already a couple of times. This is the title of the message. It could have been two titles. You got a couple of things out of it. I showed you this, baptism, how we want to focus on answering our questions by going to the Bible. That's what we have done today. And if you need to make a decision concerning baptism, we welcome you to, to do that today. If you need to make another decision, we welcome you to do that. Dan's going to say a little bit more, I think. But let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. God, help us, because we need it. Thank you for your word that is so clear. Thank you for making it clear to all of us that baptism is necessary for salvation. God, I lift up to you those who might hear this, who need to make decisions. Convict them. May they follow through. God, I ask that you would bless anyone who would read your word and believe it and follow through. May they see your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.